been in the book of Philippians for the last several weeks. And this is a little bit different than what we've typically done as a church, right? We've typically, it's kind of been more topical, but we've been diving in to the book of Philippians and examining it verse by verse and breaking it down. And our focus this year has really been discipleship and really with the focus on the table that it starts in our homes. And this mindset that discipleship and growth in our relationships with Christ, it begins in our homes. And a part of this driving force is that we need to be better Bible students and be better at digging in and understanding God's word. That's really been the driving force behind all of this, and that's why we've been looking at Philippians this way. And so what we've been looking at is as Paul has been writing to this church in Philippi, we've been looking at what he's written to this church, but then how do we apply that to our lives here in 2023? How do we apply this in our lives? Because application leads to transformation. Come on, if you look at what we've done as a church of the last few years with Transformed, Kingdom Co., being kingdom-minded, it all lines up, right? We are transformed when we become kingdom-minded people and we're digging into God's word, we're sitting at the table, we're digging in, and we begin to apply these principles in our lives and it leads to transformation. And so, but the reason that I am so excited to share with you guys today is as Pastor Chess said, I get to share with you the gospel, the gospel, come on. I get to share with you the gospel, but I get to share it as Paul shared it with this church in Philippi. But what I want us to do is there's a question I want us to have in the back of our minds as we go through this. And this question is really gonna be the driving force behind today's message. And the question is this, why would Paul share the gospel with this church in Philippi? Because this was a church, if you recall, that this is a church that these were friends of Paul's. Paul was close to this church. They loved Paul. In fact, as Paul was traveling and as he was establishing churches and sharing the gospel, this church was aiding him financially. They were close. They were friends of Paul's. So why share the gospel with a church that is largely made up of believers? Why would they need the gospel? They already have faith in Christ. So that's the question I want us to have in the back of our minds. And that's the approach we're gonna take today. Why is Paul sharing the gospel with this church? Because Paul shares the gospel in some form or fashion throughout most of his letters. In fact, if you were to take a look at the book of Romans, Romans is 16 chapters long, but it is this detailed breakdown theological essay of the gospel in 16 chapters. Here in Philippians, six short verses. Big difference. Stands in stark contrast to what he does in in the book of Romans, right? So that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to dive into. Why is Paul sharing the gospel with this church in Philippi? Before we dive in, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and as we dive into your word this morning, and specifically your gospel, my prayer is that our hearts in here would be stirred and understand why it is that we, even as believers, we need the gospel. God, I ask that you would challenge us and give me clarity as I deliver your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11, but verse 5 says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. As I was thinking about this and I was praying over my message this morning, there was one word that actually stuck out that I didn't even 
hit on in my notes at all. It's that second word, must. Must. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. It's an imperative statement. But this verse, verse five, it's really this transition verse. This transition verse is connected between what he talked about in the previous verses of the chapter and to where Paul's going to go next as he addresses the gospel. And if you recall last week, as we were talking about being unified and unified in purpose, verses three and four said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble thinking of others better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So what Paul is doing here is he's going to take this mindset, and it's a mindset of what it means to be Christ-like. And he's taking this mindset, and now he's going to show us what Christ did with that mindset. He's going to show us what it meant for Christ to humble himself. So pick it up here, verse 6. And this is where Paul's going to begin this summation of the gospel. It says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The gospel. So here in verse 6, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. Here in verse 6, Paul starts this interjection of the gospel, tying together those characteristics that we looked at in those previous verses, verses 3 and 4. And the first thing that we're going to learn here in Paul's exhortation of the gospel is Christ's humility. Christ's humility. And Pastor Chad hit on this last week, but the Trinity is really one of those things that we don't fully understand. It's something we don't really fully comprehend. But we do understand that, that the Trinity consists of God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And though Jesus, though he was equal to God the Father, he did not think of his equality with the Father as something to cling to. In fact, if you look at that same verse, verse 6 in the ESV, it says it this way, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Now, when I read this, and I read that, it says, in the form of God, my mind immediately went back to Genesis chapter one. Man was created in the image or in the form of God. But there's something else we have to understand here. See, in Romans 8.29, in Paul's explanation of the gospel, right? In Romans 8.29, Paul tells us that believers are to be in the image of Christ, to act and live as Jesus would. To be in the image of God, what this means is we work, we live, we serve, and we behave in a way that God would if he were physically present on the earth. Catch that. We live, we serve, we behave in a way that God would if he were physically present on the earth, which is what Christ did perfectly. What Christ as man did perfectly. And thus, we are to imitate Christ. So how does Christ then show that his equality with God was something not to cling to? He humbled himself. Verse 7 and 8, instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Now, one of the first things that I noticed that caught my attention when I was reading this was the order. Why would Paul say he became a slave and then became human? To me, in my mind, it makes sense that it would be the other way around. He would become human and then become a servant. But it says he became a slave and then born as a human being. So we need to understand, to fully understand this, we have to understand what it meant for Jesus to give up his divine privileges. And it wasn't that he gave up his deity. In fact, if you look at the literal translation, and your Bible may say this depending on the version, it literally meant he emptied himself. He emptied himself, and it's not that he gave up his deity, but Jesus did give up and laid aside his rights as God so he could become a servant. And Paul is telling us, what Paul is trying to tell us here, and what he's telling that church in Philippi is just as Christ did, we are to do the same also. We are to have that same mindset. We set aside our titles, we set aside our positions, our status, our financial status, all those things that are important to so many, right? Those things that make us quote unquote important, we are to set aside those things and humble ourselves so that we can become servants and serve those God has called us to serve. So the question then becomes, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to set aside your position, your title, your status, and humble yourself and take on the form of a servant, of a slave? So I think part of the struggle with this word slave has to do with maybe our, our nation's history or even our American culture in general. But we need to understand what Paul meant when he said the word slave. See, here in verse 7, that word that's translated slave is the Greek word doulos. Doulos. And that word literally means a bondservant. A bondservant. And a bondservant was someone who was a slave or a servant to an owner by choice. By choice. Christ chose to humble himself in obedience to God. Church, are you willing to make that same choice? Keep in mind, this isn't the choice about salvation. This isn't the choice about salvation. This is a choice in regards to obedience and to humbling yourselves and being obedient to God. So let's take a look at the implications of this, going back to the question I posed earlier. Why is Paul sharing the gospel in this manner with this church? To understand it, we actually have to take into consideration what we've looked at over the past several weeks. Because in our Bibles, we have you know, the book of Philippians and all the Bibles, all the books of the Bible separated into chapters and verses. But when Paul wrote this letter, it was just that. It was a letter. It was a letter. And so it has this particular flow to it. And so what Paul hits on here in regards to the gospel ties into what he's already hit on, what we consider our chapter one. It all ties together. And if you recall a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chad spoke on living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we pointed out how the gospel is mentioned. The overall theme of the letter is joy. The overall theme of the letter of Philippians is joy, but how the gospel plays a prominent role throughout that first chapter, how often Paul mentions the gospel, and he's continuing this thought all the way here into chapter two. 
that we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But if you go back even just a few more verses in verse 21 of chapter one, Paul said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So to live is Christ, to die is gain, and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So how does this tie in, tie in to here to verses six through eight? Well, it answers the question of why. Why is Paul sharing the gospel? Let's take a look at this. First, I wanna look at this phrase, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Starting with the di- to die is gain. I wanna look at this first, because we understand that when we die as believers, we go to spend eternity in heaven with God, right? With our creator. To spend eternity in the presence of God. Church, is there any better place to be than in the presence of God? That is what we as Christians should long for. We should long to be in his presence. And death for us as believers is the penultimate expression of that. There is no better place to be than in the presence of God. So in that sense, to die is gain, but to live is Christ. To be in his image, to do as he did. I want us to think about this, how how Paul puts this in verse seven here in chapter two of Philippians, because it's gonna make a little more sense of what this to live as Christ means. You see, Christ gave up his divine appointment for a time, He gave up his divine appointment four times so that he could bring the world back into a relationship with their creator that was lost in the garden when Adam sinned. And if the gospel was simply about salvation, then at the moment that we come to faith, then we might as well just go be with the Lord. If it was simply about salvation, we would go be with him at the moment of faith. There's nothing else we're saved. What else is there to do? But the gospel isn't simply about salvation. It's the mission. And as I was preparing for this message, I was meeting with Pastor Jesse, who's our youth pastor at our Marshfield campus. You've probably heard we are one one church in multiple locations. We have this campus here in Republic, and we have a campus out in Marshfield. And Pastor Jesse's communicating this week out in Marshfield on on these same verses. And as we were talking over this and praying over this, he gave me a quote that he couldn't remember where he had gotten it or where he had heard it or who had even said it. But it rings... So true. You never graduate from the gospel. Now, I've got a son that's getting ready to graduate high school. He just turned 18. Pray for me. He just turned 18. He's legally an adult. But we never graduate from the gospel. The gospel isn't simply about salvation. It's the mission. We never stop being on mission for the gospel. To live is Christ. To do as Christ did. So we as believers, just like Christ did, we set aside our eternal inheritance for a time so that we can lead others back into a relationship with Christ. To live is Christ. Because we are promised an eternal inheritance as believers, are we not? We are promised that eternal inheritance, but we give it up for a time. We don't immediately go with the Lord at the moment of salvation. We give it up for a time and we get to make the same choice. It's a choice. We get to make the same choice choice that Christ did to humble ourselves, set it aside, our titles, positions, status, all of it, in order to reach a lost and hurting world with the gospel. It's the mission. It's not only about salvation. And he starts off in verse five with this statement, you must. 
I think we miss the must. I think we get so caught up in, I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't have time. I don't, no, you must. We must. Which brings me to what, probably the most challenging part of my message today, because it's an issue that is plaguing the church. It's plaguing the church as a whole. Not, not Destiny Church, but the church as a whole. And so what I want to do is I want to address this issue, but I want to define it for those who maybe haven't heard of it, but I want to see what the biblical response is to this issue and how we can hit on it head on. And the issue is deconstruction. Who in here, just out of curiosity, who has heard this term, deconstruction? Raise your hand. Maybe you've heard it as spiritual deconstruction, faith deconstruction, evangelical deconstruction, but you've heard of deconstruction in some sense. How many of you heard it from a negative viewpoint? I know I have. But it makes sense why, on the surface, of why this is seen as negative. But the reason I'm even posing this question is as I was processing through this and I was thinking about why is Paul sharing this gospel message with this church in Philippi who's engaged in the mission, I got to wondering, this was a church that was helping Paul, but yet he's addressing the issue. So the question is, why do we struggle with the mission? Where's the struggle? And I think this issue plays a large part into why we struggle with the mission. So first off, let me define it for those who haven't heard it in the room. Deconstruction is simply taking inventory of and tearing down every doctrinal belief and thoroughly examining it. In other words, it's a re-examination of faith. And as I said, for some, it's kind of this hot topic. It's become a heated debate within the church community. But in general, it's considered widely negative. And you can see why. The thought that people are trying to find holes, they're digging in, they're examining it, and they're trying to find these holes in the theories of faith is kind of what the thought process is. And so they see it as negative. But can we address the real issue at hand? Why are they deconstructing? Why is it an issue? So to understand this, I want us to understand who it is that's deconstructing. Because the first assumption I think that a lot of people make when they hear this word, well, it's the unbelieving world, it's those outside of the church, they're just trying to find holes in our faith. But that's not the case. It's the people within the four walls of the church that are deconstructing their faith. Why? What would lead a believer or someone who attends church regularly to deconstruct their faith and question everything that they believe? Well, based on an I love the internet. Who loves the internet? Come on. I'm one of those, though, I don't tend to get involved in heated debates on the internet, but I like to read them, especially on biblical stuff. And it drives my wife crazy that I do this. I'll sit there and I'll start making comments about it. But through just from what I've read, plus also conversations I've had with several different people, I've come to believe that the reason that people are deconstructing their faith is what they hear on Sunday mornings, and what they're reading in their Bibles does not line up with what they see in the lives of those who claim to be followers of Christ. It does not line up. But the fact that they read, what they read and what they hear doesn't line up, it causes them to question everything they thought they knew in regards to the God that they thought they knew. Yeah. 
Let me repeat that. The fact that what they read, that what they read and what they hear doesn't line up with what they see, it leads them to question everything they know in regards to the God they think they knew. And they begin tearing it all down. And they determine that there's no point in trying to reconcile it all. There's no way I can make it fit. And so they simply just walk away and they leave the church. And many of them even go as far as calling themselves atheists because it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. And this is why it's considered and seen as a negative because it's driving people away from the church. But can I offer you a different point of view? That deconstruction may be as much of a positive as it is a negative. And you're probably looking at me going, well, how in the world can this be seen as a positive. If it's really driving people away from the church, how can it be seen as a positive? But hear me out. What leads someone to begin this process of deconstruction? Simple answer, they're searching. They're searching. The problem is what they've been shown and given up to this point is wrong. It's a false gospel. It's been simply been limited to salvation only. We've missed sight of the mission, forgetting the only that we talked about a couple weeks ago, only live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Notice it doesn't say only accept the gospel, only believe in the gospel. No, it says only live in a manner worthy of the gospel. If the church was built on the gospel and doing the work of the gospel and living in a manner worthy of the gospel, listen to me, there would be nothing to tear down. There would be nothing to deconstruct. But the fact that people are searching gives an opportunity for the church to course correct. By living in a manner worthy of the gospel, by humbling ourselves and becoming servants, setting aside our titles, setting aside our positions of authority, we set aside our status, all of it, then we can begin to show those searching for answers the truth of the gospel. That what they read and what they hear is the same as what they see from those who walk into the church with them every single week. It's the mission. So let me hit on maybe a real world example of this. And this is gonna be somewhat of, I don't wanna say an extreme example, but it kind of is. But let's say you're just going through everyday life. It's just a normal day, whatever your day looks like. But you have an opportunity, the opportunity arises where you can either maybe share the gospel with someone, or even just mention Christ, a simple saying, God is good. But you look at this person, and they're wearing maybe, you know, they've got black jeans with a bunch of tears in them. You know, they've got the chain that's hanging down from the waist, maybe a heavy metal t-shirt, you know, maybe some distasteful tattoos up their arms, you know, maybe they've got their hair dyed a certain color, and they just and you, in a quick moment, in a quick judgment call, you look at them and say, and just think, I am not gonna share the gospel with them because they've already made their decision about Christ. It doesn't have to be the extreme example. It could be somebody at work. They could be in a suit and tie. But just based on what they say, how they act, and maybe the things they've done, you've seen them do, you just automatically make the assumption that they have no interest in Christ, that they've already made that decision. Who's ever done that? I have. I've made those judgment calls, those assumptions. But let me ask you, why do they look like this? Going back to that extreme example, 
Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why do they look like that? And by the way, if you haven't figured it out, why is my favorite question? And if you wanna get deep into God's word and study, ask that question a lot. Why? Don't just take for granted what the word says. Go the next step and ask, why did God do it that way and not another way? Ask that question a lot. Why will get you deep into Bible study? But the question then I ask is, why do they look like that? And I can actually answer that question from personal experience. I was never quite that extreme, but I can tell you why they look like that. It's because they're searching. They're trying to figure out who they are. They're searching for their identity. Where does God's word say our identity is found? It's in Christ. Who's going to be more open to hearing where their identity can be found than someone who is searching for their identity? So why make the assumption? Why do we make the assumption they would have no interest? We assume based on what they look like, they don't have any interest. But they may be the ones most open to accepting the gospel, about hearing where their identity is found. Which leads me to my next question. Our focus this year has been on the table. Let me ask you this. We're launching into table groups this week. Who's sitting at your table? Maybe the better question is, who have you invited to your table? Who is at Jesus' table? Who did Jesus sit with? If you look in the Gospels, he sat with the sinners and the tax collectors. He didn't sit with the religious crowd. Jesus didn't sit with those who look, look like him. But see, we get so caught up in picking our table group based on who our friends are, the clique we hang out with at church. We get so caught up in that that we completely miss the mission. Why are we only focused on the things we, on us? Why are we only focused on us? And yes, biblical community is important. We are to have biblical community and table groups are perfect for that. They are important to help us grow in our relationship with Christ. But if we're not inviting people to the table, Jesus didn't come to hang out with the religious crowd. He came to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable. He came to associate with the outcast. You see how all this is starting to tie in to why Paul is sharing the gospel with the church of believers? It's not about salvation. Not just about salvation. That's a big part of it. The gospel, is, the gospel message is what saves us, right? It's faith in that message that Jesus came and he gave up, he gave up his, his inheritance in, in heaven and became a man and became a servant and he died and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins. That's the saving message of the gospel. But it's more than that. There's a part for us once we come to faith, we have a mission in the gospel. We can't lose sight of the fact that to live is Christ. To do as Christ did. To live as Christ did. To be on mission with the gospel. I have two bracelets on and I wear these pretty much just about everywhere I go. The first one says Philippians 3.14. I don't get to exposit that verse today. We'll get to that in a month or two, right? As we get there in Philippians chapter 3. But I do want to hit on this verse because it, like I said, 
This is a letter. It all flows together and it ties together. But this verse says, and this is my favorite verse. This has kind of become, if you want to call it my life verse, this is my life verse. It's Philippians 3.14. And it says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. And my other one is actually from here at Destiny Church in 2021 from Father's Day. It says, on mission always. Subtle reminders that I have a mission and I press on on that mission. Now, do I get it right 100% of the time? Not even close. Like I said, I've made those judgment calls and decided not to share the gospel with somebody who needed to hear the gospel. And I have to repent of that. But I'm reminded of how just important this mission is as I've prepared for this today. So the first thing we see in Paul's exhortation of the gospel is Christ's humility. The second thing we see is Christ's exaltation. So I want to wrap this up, and I want to see how Paul concludes this explanation of the gospel. And really, this is the purpose of it all. Because Christ was willing to make the choice in obedience to humble himself and die on a cross. Remember, it was his choice. In fact, John 10, 18 says, and this is Jesus speaking, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. So because of Christ's obedience and humility, God is going to exalt his son. It's the final outcome. Verse nine. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This passage is telling us because of Christ's obedience, God will elevate him to the highest honor and give him the name above all other names. The Greek word here in that verse for elevated is hooper upsuo. And that word literally means highly exalted or super exalted. Highly exalted. And every knee, every knee, those in heaven, those on earth, and yes, even those under the earth will bow before him. What we see here in this exaltation of Christ is the subjection of the whole creation to Jesus, to the King of Kings. And we'll see all of this come to fruition. You can actually read about it in the book of Revelation. When Christ returns at the end of tribulation, Revelation tells us that he will bear a name that only he himself knows and all of creation. Again, those in heaven and on earth, as well as those below the earth. Think about that statement for a minute. Those below the earth, the fallen angels, the demonic realm, those who never had faith in Christ, even they will declare that he is Lord. Every knee will bow. All will bow before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And all will declare that he 
is Lord. Come on, church, can we just declare for just a moment that Jesus is Lord? Come on. He deserves our praise. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day, we will get to experience his presence in fullness and get to worship him in that presence. But because of Jesus' humility and obedience, his self-emptying death on the cross, God exalts him to the highest place of honor. He receives the name above every other name. And this signifies Jesus' exalted status and his unique relationship with God the Father. Interesting enough, in, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, just before he ascends, Jesus says, I have been given all authority, all authority in heaven and earth. But then look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is simply claiming what we've seen here in Philippians today, that he is exalted, and then he gives the command that we are to be on mission and unified in that mission, unified in purpose of sharing the gospel. Go and make disciples. Humble yourself, do as Christ did, and live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But let's not forget, we have a promise as believers ourselves. James chapter four, verse 10. This is incredibly powerful. You see how it lines up with what we just read in Philippians. It says this, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Just as Christ, because of his humility and obedience was exalted, we too will be lifted up in honor. Now, obviously not in the same, same sense that Christ is, but the, prom the Bible promises those of us who are believers that one day we will reign with Christ. And we should look forward to that day. But notice what it says. Humble yourself. Christ humbled himself and was exalted. Humble yourself and be lifted up to a place of honor. Live as Christ to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, declaring that he is Lord. Remember, it's more of him and less of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, as we have dove into the message of your gospel and seen that it is not simply about a salvation moment, but it's also our mission. So Father, as we've dove into this today, my prayer is that our hearts have been stirred and been given a new passion and a new fire for you, to be on mission for you. Holy Spirit, be with us in these next few moments. Stir every heart. In Jesus' name.